Greetings from Cyberdelic Space. This is Lorenzo, and I'm your host here in Psychedelic Salon 2.0. And it is my pleasure to begin today by thanking Bradley G., Samuel G., Justin E., and Ian W., uh, all of whom have made direct donations to the salon to help offset some of the expenses associated with producing these podcasts. Also, I'm pleased to welcome several new supporters of my writing projects through Patreon. And these kind souls are Robert R., Ryan, and Sam R. A. So, uh, hey, thank you one and all for your generous support. Also, uh, I should remind you that every Monday night at 6.30 Pacific Time, I've been getting together with any of my Patreon supporters who want to join our little Zoom conversation. In fact, last week, Bruce Damer joined us and talked about the new scientific expedition that he'll be leading in New Zealand next week, and uh, that's to continue the work on his origin of life theory that is now being tested at several major universities. And speaking of New Zealand, in last night's Zoom conversation, we were joined by fellow saloners from New Zealand, Australia, and Uruguay, in addition to uh, those of us here in the States. So if you're also a Patreon supporter of my work, uh, well, I hope to hear you soon and see you soon in one of our regular Monday night conversations. And uh, now for today's program. You know, uh, when Lex forwards me a recording to play here in Salon 2.0, he usually suggests a title for the program, which, uh, well, I must admit that I don't always follow. But today I used his suggestion because he said that it sounded like the name of a band. And if you've got a strange mind like mine, well, you immediately said, of course, it's a band of brothers. And in this case, it's also a band of sisters as well. Which reminds me to tell you about one of the salon's musical sisters. Her name is Cora Venus Lunny, and I first became aware of her when she became one of my supporters on Patreon, where I usually try to find out a little about them on the net so as to uh, see what they do in the default world. And as a result, I've discovered that the salon has a very eclectic audience, many of whom have excelled in the arts, business, law, and even politics. But it's, well, I have to admit, it's the musicians who are nearest and dearest to my heart. I guess that may be because, well, after a half a dozen or so years of taking piano lessons when I was younger, I had to quit because I realized how impossibly hard, for me at least, it was to commit to the practice required to play an instrument even halfway decently. Or uh, maybe I got hooked on music because in Catholic school the nuns told us that music was the highest form of prayer. Or maybe I'm so drawn to music because ever since I bought my first Elvis Presley record in 1955, well ever since then music has been my lifeline more than once. And uh, so whenever I come across the musician at the top of their form, I have to stop what I'm doing and just listen. And the other day, for my first time, I heard my Patreon supporter, Cora Venus Lunny. I heard her play the violin, and for the next few hours, I searched out as many of her performances on YouTube that I could find. Then I discovered that Cora also has a Patreon site, and there I discovered that, like many other artists I know, she creates and performs for you and me so that we can listen. 
In fact, here's how she begins her Patreon overview. Quote, This is truly free music on so many levels. You can hear it as often as you want, no strings attached. Moreover, it has been freely improvised in free time with no expectations or deadlines or agendas. It is also free-range, grass-fed, locally produced, and 100% organic. End quote. <laughs> and, uh, well, to tell you the truth, it's that last part that really got me because I value a good sense of humor almost as much as I do intelligence. Anyway, uh, since the main thing that Venus is asking for is for more of us to enjoy her music, I thought that instead of making a donation, I'd give her a plug here. And uh, I'll add a couple of links to her YouTube performances in today's program notes, which you can find at psychedelicsalon.com. And now, let's join Lex Pelger, who will introduce today's program. I'm Lex Pelger, and this is the Psychedelic Salon 2.0. This episode of the Salon makes me feel quite nostalgic. On our psychedelic storytelling tour, we're going back to the beginning of the trip. This is the first stop of the Blue Dot Tour up in Boston. We only have a couple of episodes left in the tour, and the very last episode will be the one from my parents' barn in Lancaster, Pennsylvania. That's what has me feeling nostalgic, because this tour started my journey towards fatherhood. And now we'll be returning to Lancaster on August 4th to a little old stone church where I'll be marrying Claire. You never know what this life may bring, and thinking about the start of this trip makes me want to say thank you to everyone who came and shared and turned it into one of the most powerful experiences of my life. Today, Rick Doblin leads us off in an auditorium at Northeastern, and then he's followed by a wide array of storytellers. This week is especially strong in the power of these drugs to help people's mental health. We probably all know someone who might be helped by psychedelics, and if they're nervous to try, now Michael Pollan's new book gives us all a new air of legitimacy. You're going to be hearing increased interest in psychedelics because of him, so we all have to be ready to share about the power of these medicines. I hope you enjoy. This actually is um, uh, 1985. And this is a story of, that explains why uh, MDMA for PTSD, in a way, is what we're doing. And so, starting in 72, I started thinking, I want to be a psychedelic therapist, but the main thing was I needed my own psychedelic therapy. And so I ended up uh, dropping out of college and spending about 10 years um, building houses, building things to get grounded in the world, and little by little, using psychedelics every now and then again, because I had... Um, a lot of very difficult psychedelic experiences that were very painful, very self-critical. Uh, one time I felt that um, I was resisting so much. I was so scared of letting go that I felt this resistance was just building up all this heat inside my brain. And then I would um, sort of move my head and I could sort of feel my brain liquefying. <laughs> and then I had a nasal drip and I interpreted that as my brain sort of melting through my nose. <laughs> I was just like... <laughs> terrible experience um, and so I had a lot of fearful experiences but I felt there was always something healing in this psychedelics I wanted to keep going and so I spent um, you know this 10 years doing little bits of um, psychedelics and occasionally big doses preparing getting grounded and then starting in 82 I learned about uh, MDMA I 
went to workshops with, uh, at Esalen with Stan Groff. I started learning about the whole drop breath work. And in 84, Stan and Christina, his wife, had a month-long workshop on uh, the spiritual emergency network. In a way, that's the founding of the Zendo project. It was this idea that a lot of people have experiences that are either catalyzed by psychedelics or sometimes by meditation or other things that look like borderline spiritual psychotic, spiritual emergencies. And they're not really able to handle them and our current psychiatry pathologizes them and tranquilizes them. And so this was a workshop on a different approach of letting the symptoms come to the surface, working with people in a different way. So I did this month-long workshop. This is now 1984, MDMA is still legal. And I got home a couple days only from this workshop I was still a college undergraduate, and I got a call from a friend of mine saying that he and a girlfriend of his had done MDMA together, which I had sold them, and that um, during this experience, she had remembered um, horrible trauma from her childhood, from being raped, from being kidnapped, all, all horrible things, and it brought this stuff to the surface, and she, she had sort of been keeping it buried. She'd been in and out of mental institutions before multiple times in her life. And this brought it to the surface. And she was saying, um, I really can't handle this. And she ended up checking herself into a mental hospital after this MDMA experience. And they gave her the same tranquilizers, the same as before. And she got out and she said, I am no better. This is not helping. Uh, There's no reason to live. I'm going to commit suicide. And my friend called me and said... um, Look what happened after you gave me this MDMA. And he said, I want you to try to help her. And so this was sort of like a turning point in my life was, um, what do I do? Because I felt like I'm not qualified. I am not a trained therapist. This is just something I'm wanting to become. On the other hand, the traditional medicine had failed her. There was nothing that she was going to else to try. She was suicidal. And I just thought, well maybe I should try to help because I knew that the MDMA can bring things to the surface and if you're not prepared, it can make you feel worse off. But if you still keep working with it in a safe place, it could be helpful. So I talked to her and I said, "Um, as long as you promise not to commit suicide when you're with me, that um, I'm willing to get some of my friends together and we'll create a um, sort of residential treatment facility for you at my house and we'll be watching you for um, you know every day for a couple weeks all the time. We'll bring in a bunch of women co-therapists to help me, and we'll try. We'll I'll agree to work with you as long as you promise not to commit suicide when you're with me. And she agreed to do that. And so um, she came down, and the first thing we did was an MDMA experience, and it was this eight-hour experience, male-female team, and it was like a tour of her history of trauma from childhood, abusive family, you know, being kidnapped later, being raped later, all these horrible things that had happened in her life. And we felt like this was um, just like the uh, inner emotional biography in a way of trauma. And it was opening in ways she was able to come to grips with things, but it, it didn't feel like it sort of broke things open. So I said, all right, let's wait a couple weeks and then let's try LSD. That maybe would be... Now, I should also say that the first use ever of psychedelics for PTSD was by a Dr. Bastians in the Netherlands, and he did work with LSD with concentration camp survivors. There's an incredible book called Shaviti 
by an Israeli Holocaust writer who went to the Netherlands in the 80s, uh, in the 70s, I think, actually, to get LSD therapy. And he's written a book about his LSD therapy for being in the concentration camps. So LSD was really this first uh, drug tried to be used in psychedelics for PTSD. So I thought, okay, maybe LSD would open the door and, and really help her get healed. And so, in the so we tried this LSD, and it was um, it does not have that fear-reducing properties of MDMA. So it was terrifying for her, and things were very symbolic. And so there was a point where she felt that she was um, on a foreign world with two sons, and she was baking to death. Um, and but it wasn't her life; it was somewhere out in the galaxies, and it was just so totally terrifying that she couldn't make any progress. And so we thought, um, all right, maybe if we give half a dose of MDMA to soften the LSD, that that would be helpful. And so she agreed to try to do that. And that half a dose of the MDMA really was the transformative uh, ingredient. And so it turned from this foreign world with these two sons uh, baking down on turf to actually being... Um, after she had been raped and beaten up and left out in the sun under the, uh, under the sun. So it turned from symbolic to her life. And she was able to really work through um, and process it. And it turned out it was a date rape story. And so the, the key moment actually was um, where she was talking about how this was somebody that she had trusted and he was not trustworthy. And that sort of made it in her mind that she could never trust love. She could never trust her own ability. She could al always doubt it. So there was no reason to live because there was no reason to find, no ability to find love because she couldn't really trust herself to do that. And so I asked her, well, what made you trust him in the first place? And she immediately started throwing up. And then she started saying that he was really kind to animals and that that's what made her think that he would be a nice person. And so then she was able to recognize that, um, that that's not a signal of somebody necessarily being a nice person. And so she started being able to recover her ability to evaluate people and to be more cautious about extending trust. But she gained a little bit of confidence that she was able to find love again. And so that was sort of the key opening moment. She stayed another couple weeks um, she had this uh, period of time where she was um, looking at me and looking at my feet and seeing my feet were turning into the, ra the rapist's feet. And then my face was, so I was going back and forth. So she was like projecting her fears onto me. And I felt like um, I was really sincerely trying to help her that I could accept all these fears and anxieties. So I was like a projection screen. And it would go back and forth to, as I, am I me or am I the rapist or, or what's going on? And so being able to stand through that and then her also processing and then these other women that were helping us in this uh, therapy. And after a couple weeks, she ended up um, being able to go home and start her, her life. And this was 1984. And during this escalation of the demonization of MDMA and the one dose, serious brain damage, you know, you're going to be screwed for life if you even try it. I just was watching this woman and seeing that it was working and it was helping her to um, forge a new life. And so she decided that she wanted to become a therapist. 
And over the years, she went back to school. She became a therapist. And so I had this sort of touchstone from 1984 that it actually can work. I sort of knew it from my life, and I knew it from her. And so all through this time now, um, she's been growing, and, and she's now actually one of the therapists working on our MDMA phase three and phase two studies. Yeah. So I don't really have a specific experience to share. I more so have a relationship with psychedelics that I'd like to share. There are a lot of details in here that involve my personal life, and they kind of help to um, illustrate the story of how my relationship with psychedelics um, changed me and allowed me to really become the happier, thriving person that I am today. So a little bit of background is necessary here. I didn't grow up in the worst neighborhood, but I did grow up in a relatively bad neighborhood in a lower mid middle income city. At one point, I had four kids rush into my house and beat my brother with a metal bat. I seen him on the floor with blood just everywhere, and there was nothing I could do. And it was probably his fault because he was on drugs at the time. But that just that just illustrates like where I come from. I was surrounded by negative influences, and I knew it. Around 2008, I had my first experiences with psychedelics, psilocybin mushrooms, you know. You know, some mushrooms, friends smoking a couple blunts, some music going, you, you know, Timothy, uh, not, not Timothy, um, Terrence McKenna talking about the war on consciousness, and, you know, God knows what, what else. So I, I was starting to see... Um, I remember a cop just got shot in the head behind my, my high school the previous year. It's crazy things going on. The effects of mass, the massive overprescribing of opiate medications was really starting to take hold of the community. I see, saw a lot of people going into drug addiction. And it was starting to come for me as well because I had been prescribed Adderall from the, from the, rate, the age of like eight years old. So I had one profound life-changing thought on, on uh, psilocybin and it was that I was intelligent and that if I could just get myself to a, a happier place that I, there was no limit to what I could do all I had to do was enter a new state the, this experience alone wasn't, wasn't enough to stop me from going down the road of addiction and dependence but it did plant a seed that gave me the respect for psychedelics that led me to the medicine that, that did, did get me to the place that I am now. Fast forward to 2012. I'm now a couple years into college, but I am taking a semester off. My Adderall use has uh, evolved into dependence and borderline addiction. I'm not robbing anybody for it, but I'm taking a lot of it and it's just not doing what it's supposed to do. I'm not motivated. I'm not focused. I'm going nowhere. It's, 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 uh, I'm at a dead end. I'm stuck in a cycle. On top of that, a close family member just got out of jail and is using heroin. I'm like, there's got to be a psychedelic for this. There's just a, such a, a, an obvious difference between people who use psychedelics and people who use addictive drugs like benzodiazepines, uh, opiates, uh, cocaine, all of those things. There's a very, very clear difference. I mean, sure, I had a dependence, but I was not like, you know, I was, wasn't out on the street. I wasn't robbing anybody. I wasn't going crazy. It was, there was a very, very different, different thing. So I took to Google. I found some articles written by some guy who's smoking DMT once a night. 
to fend off heroin crazing sounds good, but not quite good enough. I hadn't been able to, to properly vaporize DMT yet, so I couldn't really, couldn't really do that. Eventually, I stumbled upon, stumbled upon iboga and ibogaine. For those who don't know, it's a root found in Africa that is frequently used for drug addiction. It's fascinating. I mean, it relieves opiate withdrawal without actually getting the user high. Not that I needed that particular pro- property, but it really seemed to indicate that it had a very specific purpose on this planet. For growing like that, it just... I mean, it seems like, you know, I, told, I tell my family like this because it's the only way they understand. God put this here for us. I don't believe in God, but I say it like that because they understand it that way. <laughs> so I acquired some, and I attempted to treat myself with it, and it felt so weird. I'd ne- never been so hot in my life. I was sweating my... It was, it was the middle of winter. I had my window wide open, cold air coming in. I was so hot, sweating, sweating. It's crazy, and it felt so weird. I remember having closed-eye visuals of what it appeared to be like people's faces like twitching and bugging out. Like, I, don't, I don't know what the, the significance of that was, but it was really bizarre. But the this, this subject material was, that I pondered on was very interesting. It was mostly related to human behavior and the repetitive things we do. As usual, it's, it's pretty hard to describe, but it felt like we're all hamsters running on a wheel and we're just doing what we're pro- programmed to do. To an extent, everything was predetermined. I didn't take what's usually used for, for addiction treatment called a flood dose, typically 20 milligrams per kilogram of body, body weight. I tried, but I didn't have the proper anti-nausea, anti-emetic medication to really fend off that kind of nausea. I got maybe one-third of the dose in me and puked the rest. Started the process, though. I abstained for a while, and then I decided to wean off the medication. Looking back, I should have just stopped altogether and just let the ibogaine really work its magic, which is what I did last year, January last year. I stopped, flooded, couldn't take the full, do- full dose, so I just took a week off from my responsibilities, and I just kind of like let the medicine do its magic over that week. A week later, I felt incredible. I went, I, st- I started crushing it at school. I got a new job, so started making decent money, going to the gym three, four times a week. I started making music and learning how to produce electronic music, like something I had been wanting to do for, for years. Like I finally was able to do that. I was finally able to, and I didn't, like... I began made me feel like I was on Adderall without taking Adderall, and I didn't need to take anything. Like I didn't need to keep taking it. I began. I was just happy to be sober and be myself. You know what I mean? It's like it was incredible. One of my friends saw the witnessed the transformation I underwent. He mentions in, in late 2013 that um, one time I helped get, helped get him some weed. Short notice, he came over, and I was like, I was fucking. <laughs> Huffing canned air with my roommates, like on the on the ground. He's like, "What the fuck? Like this is like, what are you doing, you loser?" <laughs> <laughs> so a few years later, I, I lost like 40, 50 pounds. I'm going to the gym all the time. I'm like being productive. Like I go over his house and like you know, like they go to shows all the time. They like to party. They're doing cocaine. I skip the cocaine trick because I'm just the being motivated is way more important. And to be honest, cocaine's not it's not special anyway. <laughs> <laughs> Iboga didn't, didn't do the work for me, but it gave me what I needed to do, do it myself. It's not, that I, it's not just that I no longer have a dependence. It's like I never had one. I get no cravings. I don't think about my drug of choice. I don't, but if I wanted to, I could go out this weekend, do, do, some, do some cocaine, get absolutely wrecked, and resume normal life back on Monday, which most recovering addicts, if you've ever been to an NA or an AA meeting, they, cannot do, they can't even have one beer. I'll never get back the time that I wasted, but it's an important 
part of who I am and it's immensely shaped both my worldview and the concept of what exactly humans are capable of. I'm very excited to continue to grow in the future. Thank you. So I just wanted to share my extremely positive experience using psychedelics. Uh, I haven't had MDMA, but psilocybin is something that uh, was, the, all the experiences I used it were the most important, some of the most important in my own personal development. Uh, it started um, in college, so that was probably eight years ago. Yeah, it is eight years ago. And it was a very low dose where just spending time with friends opened up a connection with nature that had never happened before. So I recommend that to any potential first-timers out there, like you can give yourself a positive experience at a very low dose, and then it, it's just start a process. Um, the second time was a much higher dose. Again, started out in nature, but the real uh, effects and most meaningful part came later on when I was alone having the previous two experiences were with a group of people, but all of a sudden alone in my dorm room, uh, I went through a common experience known as ego death. I don't know if anybody else is familiar with this, but it's uh, kind of an acknowledgement within the self of you know, being one with the world, but also being okay with your own existence not being infinite. Um, basically, you don't fear death anymore. Uh, at least that's been the lasting effect that I've had. And it helped me prioritize things in life tremendously, like it reduced fear in social situations. Probably that was the number one overall effect. But it also allowed me to look at my life up to that point with a really clear perspective and start making uh, much more healthy decisions with my own life. And that was all around 2022. I'm now 28. And uh, after such successes, I've been trying to figure out what the next best step is. And that's why I asked Rick a moment ago about trying to introduce uh, this type of treatment into existing therapy. So that's where I see my own future. But I hope you all have a future out there of your own in this area, either using the substances or being really supportive of the people who do choose to use them. Like, I don't say that everyone should use psychedelics by any means, but there are people out there that, you know, will greatly benefit from this type of stuff. So just, you know, have an open dialogue and, uh, yeah. Uh, I'm going to apologize because I get really anxious in uh, public speaking. Um, but this uh, this talk, the storytelling, is actually sort of part of the integration process of this experience still for me. Um, so that's why I want to do it. Um, so when I was preparing, I also have some notes, so I apologize if I'm looking at my phone. Um, so when I was preparing for tonight, uh, I couldn't really think of the best way to start this story because everything I thought of uh, kind of came back to drugs changed my life, um, right? But uh, what, what actually is, is what I want to convey is the fact that um, psychedelics have allowed me to change my life. Um, they have been um, what I think, um, so, so this time last year I was living in Prague and I went to a talk given by a doctor named Frederica Fisher who worked with Stan Grav. Um, and she uh, likened psychedelics to a catalyst, 
Um, and I think that's exactly what I feel uh, my relationship with psychedelics are. Um, I'm studying for the MCAT right now, and so uh, a, a catalyst to me is something that lowers the activation energy of a reaction without, um, without uh, changing the equilibrium or the final product, right? So for me, that's what psychedelics have been, is they've allowed me to do these things in my life. Um, so that's sort of my little caveat. Um, so the story goes a little bit like this. Um, Jake, who actually left, I have permission to use these people's names, by the way. Um, so Jake, who actually left, he's the president of SSDP. On December 1st, we celebrated his birthday, um, and I, uh, I went to this party with the intention of taking 2CB. I knew that it was what I was going to do. I'd chosen that for this evening, um, and I am someone who, in the last six months, has realized that I love to insufflate drugs, and so 2CB insufflation was the way I was going to do it. Um, so I walk into the party, and this person actually isn't here, um, but he was going to be here. Yeah, yeah. Oh, yeah. Insufflation is just uh, a, a synonym for snorting drugs. Um, yeah. And yeah, a two seat. Yeah, I, I'll get into it. So, um, so I get to the party and I find my friend who I knew would be interested in taking two CB. So I offered to give him some. Um, oops. Um, <laughs> so. I, um, uh, we, we are led to the approved drug snorting room because apparently not everyone is okay with that being in public. So we go into the approved drug taking room um, and I have this thought out loud, right? Um, should I weigh out this or should I eyeball the lines? Okay, and that was mistake number one. That was mistake number one of the evening. There are two. This is one. Um, so um, uh, the mistake was not that I thought that. The mistake was that I listened to the already intoxicated bunch of people in the room who said, eyeball it. You got it. You got it. So at this point, um, I'm feeling good. I'm like, yeah, I can do this. I, I'm going to eyeball these lines of TCB, um, which is bad. Don't ever do that. <laughs> um, so, um, right, so... I uh, cut the lines, I even them out. I'm like, all right, I, uh, I wanted to do about 20 milligrams. Um, this looks good, um, 20 milligrams. I'm like, yeah, this is right. I, I, at that point, had only ever weighed out 2CB before. I'd never eyeballed it, uh, and I'd probably taken it like two or three times before this, right? So I, I had these lines. I'm like, yes, this is good. This is what I want. I let my friend um, choose and do his first as I'm sitting there mentally preparing myself for the absolute punch in the face that is insufflating 2CB. It hurts really bad. Um, but uh, obviously people do it for a reason because it's great. Um, <laughs> um, so I, I t snort this line and um, the moment that my, my, my uh, $20 bill like finished going across the powder, I was like, holy shit, that was not 20 milligrams. Definitely not. Um, and so it wasn't until the next day that I actually went back and like figured out how much I had had before and how much I had then, um, and I, anywhere between 35 and 40 milligrams is actually what I insufflated at that night. Um, so, right, yeah. <laughs> um, so for any of you who don't really know uh, or aren't familiar with 2CB, um, for me, uh, it's sort of, it's really unpleasant for like 10 minutes. 
you come up, or I come up, um, um, and you hit this wall. Um, unlike LSD, that is like waves. Um, to me, 2CB, and, and this has been pointed out to me by other people, is like a staircase. So you hit the wall and you have to come over it, right? So usually I come over this wall into a really pleasant, when you snort it, mild, um, mildly visual, like pleasant experience that's really clear-headed, unlike um, LSD, right? So um, not what I experienced this time um, at all. Um, and so so initially I, um, initially I essentially, sorry, I'm, I'm, I've lost my place in my notes here. Um, so I'm painting a picture for you, right? So I have taken this 2CB and I immediately um, didn't regret it because I knew what I had done. Um, but I was struggling because I, my body was not prepared to take that much. I was coming up very quickly when you snorted, it comes up comes on a lot quicker, um, coming up very quickly, and um, my body was not happy. I um, immediately, uh, my heart was racing. I was sweating profusely. I tried to get out of the room that I was in and want to go outside, um, and, and people were smoking a joint, and if you know me, you know that I don't ever turn down pot. Um, and, and there was like this voice in my head that was like, don't fucking touch it, like don't do it. Um, so I, I went back inside, um, and that was when um, Jake, who's actually not here, um, must have like seen my face. Um, and he immediately knew that something was wrong. Um, and so he brought me into a quiet room, and got me water, um, and uh, I had packed myself some atezolam, which is essentially, um, uh, it's not a benzo, but it works like a benzo, and uh, I took a, like a really, really low dose of that just to make sure that I um, like wasn't uh, having an anxiety attack while I was also on 2CB. Um, and so, essentially, um, uh, Jake was, a, was, was great. Um, and, and, you know, his party, so he went back to the party, um, and Owen, who's not here, um, um, came and spent, uh, probably two to two and a half hours with me sitting in the bedroom, um, while I was dealing with some really difficult shit. Um, and Owen was great because he was so able to hold space for me, um, and he was able to be compassionate and kind um, without um, um, dampening the experience, right? Um, so I have to give a little bit of context um, because of what I was dealing with. So on December 1st, I was still um, at that point in a five-year relationship that had become very toxic. Um, I, like I said, was living in Prague this time last year. I came back from Prague and I realized that um, this person that I once thought I was going to marry, um, there was a ring on my finger. I, I, I realized that this person was not that anymore. Um, I realized that I could not be with someone whose ideals were so different from my own and who, um, who just wasn't someone that 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 could support me in a way that I needed to be supported, right? So uh, I came back from Prague, and I um, sort of just lived with it. I lived with this person at the time. So for six months, I just sort of like let that eat away at me um, and let the resentment and hatred and unhappiness and toxicity of our relationship just sort of like kill me from the inside out. Uh, I started spending so much more time with the guys from SSDP. Um, so thank you because you um, rescued me. And 
um, a less time, as, as least, the least amount of time at home as possible. Um, and that's kind of sad, right, when you, when you don't want to go home. Um, and that's how you kind of know, right? Hindsight is twenty twenty. I think I probably should have realized, um, you know, the first time you get punched in the face and have to call out of work, um, that the relationship should be over. Um, but I didn't, because love, right? Um, and so... Uh, it got to the point where I was just too afraid to talk about my feelings with this person um, because I had to walk on eggshells because um, anything could just be um, an argument. Um, there, there, there was arguments over like who was going to change the cat litter box, like stupid shit. Um, so right, so all these things I had been dealing with, um, and you know, December was significant because my lease was ending. I had to make decisions about what was going to be happening with the rest of my life. And on December 1st, um, I had about a week to make those decisions. And I thought, yeah, definitely going to take some 2CB and, and, and do that. Um, and so I ended up taking a lot and, uh, and, and yeah, I started dealing with those issues um, unexpectedly, maybe. Um, not something I wanted to do at a party with 70 other people. Um, so I'm... I'm don't want to talk too much about the actual trip because we'll be here for like five hours. Um, but essentially what happens, right, so Owen and I um, uh, come out of this room. The party had ended pretty much. There was like some, some people there, some other SSTP people. Um, and they're sort of in that like post-party, like we're all just going to chill out and smoke weed and do whatever. So it came up somehow. I'm not really sure how. Um, subject of DMT came up, right? So um, mistake number two of the night was when I decided it was a good idea to dab 30 milligrams of DMT um, <laughs> and after, like, like two hours, um, two, two and a half hours after taking this ridiculous 2CB dose. Um, and this was the first time I'd ever uh, dabbed or taken DMT at all, um, right? So I, um, I'm not going to talk about the DMT trip. Uh, I probably can't talk, I can't really explain it. Um, but what I will say is that DMT fucking kicked my ass. Um, I want to do it again, and I really plan on doing it again. But that experience, um, I had been, during the trip, um, the 2CB trip, I had these thoughts of, um, that have been a problem in my life, for my entire life, of uh, feeling like a burden. Um, I work in mental health. To me, um, I am the person who provides the help, not the person who needs the help. Um, and I have a really hard time dealing with that. Um, dealing with asking for help, feeling like my existence is a burden to people who say that they love me. Um, a lot of things, right? Um, and I was dealing with all of this during this trip. Um, and the DMT just sort of like accelerated all of that um, to a point where I, um, I was really, really overwhelmed um, with the sense of the fact that my existence was burdening the people who I was with. Um, and so a month, so, so that sort of the story, and then I'll give you the happy ending um, because I feel like that was sort of a, a difficult uh, story. <laughs> so the happy ending is that a month after I um, this trip, um, within a month, I um, moved out. I found a new apartment. I formally ended a relationship that had been over for probably a year. Um, and I, um, I'm nearly 22, and I had been with this person for five years. Um, so um, since I'm... Have, was single for the first time since I was 16 years old. So I started dating, which like, oh my God, what is that? Um, and I've been really fortunate to meet a lot of really great people. Um, and one person in particular, um, I've had quite a few psychedelic experiences with, um, I think probably since December, like eight to 10 of them. Um, and 
I um, have been able to work through some of those feelings of, of, of my existence being a burden on people. Um, and this person has showed me compassion and love and um, been able to help me reformulate some of my thoughts um, that are so negative. Um, and and <laughs> the best part of this story is last, right? So um, the most ironic part that I didn't realize until, you know, when, when do you find out someone's last name when you start dating them, right? Like like a couple dates in, right? So a couple dates in, um, I realized that this person's last name is actually Burden. Um, and so the universe was kind of like, fuck you, you're dealing with this now. Um, and so uh, I am uh, dealing with it now. Um, and so essentially um, what I'm going to leave you guys with is this, right? So I um, have been dealing with all of these things um, and and in the past few months have been trying to reconcile my definition of what love is um, with my past experiences because I thought that that was love. Um, and I don't think that it was um, as much as I, I thought once. And so um, I was looking through my notes today of a presentation that I went to in Prague given by Frederica Fisher. Um, and she, at this quote that I have in, in the notebook that I found, says, love is not a feeling. It is a state of being in which you can feel truly without fear. And so thank you for listening to me. I want to talk about my experience using psilocybin-assisted exposure therapy for the treatment of OCD. Um, so if anyone doesn't know, exposure therapy is a known treatment for uh, many things, many anxiety disorders, and it involves exposing yourself to the thing that triggers the anxiety, and um, then working through that, and it, it's like the prolonged exposure that uh, one of the speakers was talking about, but it, um, yeah, it's like that. So you're exposed to it, you work through it, you get to the other side, and the theory is that if you're exposed to it enough and set those triggers off enough, it will dampen that heightened response. Um, so it is a vastly used treatment for OCD. However, it is terrifying and re-traumatizing, as was mentioned before tonight. Um, so something that I found was that psilocybin can greatly reduce um, that anxiety and that heightened response. Um, and there's a number of... Uh, there was one phase one done by... I forget the researchers, but it was a while back a phase one study was done, and uh, there's a bunch of experiential uh, reports about this effect as well. So the story goes, um, this was many years ago, so maybe when I was 17, 18, so like, I'm like 24, almost 25 now, so this was a while back. Um, early on in my like, psychedelic journey, uh, I was with my partner at the time, and uh, backstory. I was diagnosed with uh, severe OCD. My therapist suggested uh, long-term, like, residential treatment. Like, uh, she was actually hoping to get me into the McLean's program, which is a very famous OCD treatment program. It's very intensive and very... I had that OCD, <laughs> just putting it out there. And it, it was very much affecting my life in a very negative way. Um, so, fast forward, I'm... Uh, beginning my psychedelic journey, and I had taken psilocybin with uh, my current partner, and one of my OCD things was that I couldn't stand in door frames, 
Like, for whatever reason, that really freaked me out, and I thought it was going to cause tornadoes or whatever. <laughs> um, and, like, that's just anxiety disorders for you. They don't make any sense. Uh, <laughs> Uh, but like for whatever reason, I couldn't stand in doorways. So we're having the psil psilocybin experience, and all of a sudden, they point out, "Hey, you're standing in a in a doorway right now." I had like gone to like get something and like been paused on the way out, and I was standing in the doorway. And I was just like, I stood there and I didn't feel anxious, and this was very significant for me because usually that would have triggered one, I wouldn't have stood there. Two, if I had ended up somehow in that doorway, it would have triggered an, a huge anxiety response and uh, so on and so forth. And so I, I, I noticed this moment, and this is a very significant moment in my life, being there, having this pointed out to me, and being okay with it, and being able to move forward without, without much of a negative thought, uh, only, only kind of inquiries and positivity about maybe what this could entail for my future. Um, so... I move forward and uh, after this experience start doing some of my own research on the Google and the Arrowhead and, the, uh, <laughs> and all the different sites and I, I, I see these other reports of similar experiences of psilocybin helping with OCD. And so I thought to myself, hmm, maybe there's something here. Uh, forget how much time actually passed between then and when I, I started a self-administered treatment, but it was some amount of time. Um, before I decided I, I, I was going to go for it. I was going to, to um, put myself through this therapy and uh, administer this uh, medicine so that I could hopefully work through this debilitating disorder. Um, and just putting it out there, if you're going to do any sort of intensive treatment for like a debilitating disorder, you should probably do it with a doctor. Uh, but I was young, and that's not what I did. <laughs> uh, but like, uh, so I had I I began um, administering uh, the psilocybin, the medicine, on a on a very on a semi-regular basis, uh, varying from moderate to intense dose range, um, about. I'm not going to say the exact amount because it, it was not necessary. Uh, <laughs> uh, and uh, I did this over uh, several weeks. And uh, while I was, I was on the psilocybin, I made sure to, uh, to do these exposure therapies, like they would do in traditional OCD treatment, but I was on psilocybin. Um, so I would, I, would, um, I would be having my experience, and I would nor do things that would normally cause me immense anxiety, debilitating anxiety, but I was able to move through it fearlessly. And this was, this was very, this is very significant stuff. Like, um, like, I'm just thinking about it, like, I don't know if any of you know anybody or have you yourself experienced OCD, like, this is, like, really crazy stuff. Like, things that normally would have caused me to be, like, rocking in a ball, like, in a corner, like, freaking the fuck out. Uh, I could just move through and get to the other side. Um, and uh, after some time, I did start noticing these changes carrying over to my uh, normal awareness, my uh, non uh, during my during that time not on psilocybin. And I continued this treatment for for several weeks, and then finally 
uh, took kind of like the, the like final dose. Uh, like I was like, this is it. This is going to, I like knew it going in. I was like, this is going to be the day that I move past this OCD and move forward with my life. And so I took a, a, uh, heroic dose. Heroic dose. <laughs> it wasn't quite heroic, but it was, it was, it was a, it was a nice dose. Uh, of, um, of this little sideman, and I went into uh, conservation land on my hometown by myself, uh, and I and I and I moved through the woods. And these were woods I was very familiar with because I grew up around them. So I I trusted my and they weren't that big. It's like the suburbs of Boston, so it's like I wasn't like gonna get totally lost, you know. <laughs> um, but and I was familiar with these woods. But I went in by myself and. Um, Started to have my experience, and and it, and I and I I, I reached a samadhi, like a, what children say, maybe like a plus five during that experience, like total kind of bliss state. Um, and uh, and I remember, like when I had that feeling, I just like looked at the sky and like laughed at like at all that I had gone through, and like came together in this loving loving love for myself and for all all that was around me throughout the struggle and throughout, you know, like the classic psychedelic stuff. <laughs> uh, and uh, I looked at the sky and I laughed and I like sprinted up this massive hill and I like knew at that moment I was like free. Um, and, I, and I continued my journey through the woods. I was just, like listening to music and like checking shit out and stuff. <laughs> um, <laughs> But eventually, I, I remember I was on my way out of the woods towards the end of my experience, um, and I felt these eyes. You know when you can like tell someone's looking at you, you know, like you can just like kind of feel it, like you like look around. So I could tell something was looking at me, but um, I had some visual impairment. Um, <laughs> I had some visual impairment, so I couldn't really make it out. But I could tell it was coming from like over here in the tree, and I could. I could feel the, like something looking at me, and as I got closer, I, I moved towards it. I could make out the eyes of an owl making eye contact with me, <laughs> uh, and uh, and I got very very close to this owl. It was sitting up in a tree branch, and we maintained eye contact for like a couple, two, three, however many time, uh, and uh, and then the owl. Like kind of like it was like kind of final eye contact and, and flew away. And I don't know if anyone like knows anything about like spirit animals or animal guides, but um, especially in a Native American tradition, like the owl signifies a death and rebirth and a transition. And uh, so that was pretty cool too. <laughs> it was kind of like the like the death of that part of my life and a transition forward into a a a. Um, new sector where I could be free of this OCD and, and concentrate on other areas. Um, and uh, so it, it was pretty cool. Uh, uh, but like moving forward, um, this was, as I said, um, closer to a decade ago than not at this point, and I still remain OCD free to this day. <laughs> Question for all of you: Does anybody know where uh, I can score some LSD or some <laughs> or, or or okay or 
Uh, hook me up with an ayahuasca set, uh, ayahuasca session. Anybody? All right. I asked that question because when you get interested in psychedelics when you're my age, it is virtually impossible to obtain the drugs. <laughs> virtually impossible. Uh, it's funny, I guess uh, I'm, I'm on Facebook now, so I'm sort of, I've been kind of like peeking out of the psychedelic closet in the last, uh, the last six, seven months, so I guess I'm a little further out now than uh, I've been before, but my journey started in, in around two, four, 2014, actually before that, we had, uh, so in my family, we had a number of um, cataclysmic events happen, so we had a, a major financial meltdown, my wife got cancer, while I was a public official, uh, I got sued for defamation by a political opponent. It was a slap suit, strategic lawsuit against public participation. It was bullshit, but because it, because it was a defamation suit, the town that I was represented wouldn't cover me, so I had to represent myself. Adding on top of that, three of my coronary arteries were 99% blocked. And I just spent my last dime and no longer had health insurance. And so I'd arrived at this sort of uh, Willie Loman moment in my life where I was worth more dead to my family than alive. And it was miserable. I mean, we talk, you, know, you talk about rock bottom, and you know, sort of, you know, I was down there. I, I, went down, I went down into my septic system. I was in the bottom of the holding tank with all the shit, just piling down and piling down and piling down. And things got really bad. But... In that summer of 2014, there was this whole spate of articles about, um, about psychedelic research. And so when you're somebody like me, you're, like, you're not hanging out with people, and somebody's, like, you know, somebody's not coming up to you going, yeah, man, you know, I got this really cool 2C, whatever the hell is this stuff. I don't even know what that stuff was. <laughs> <laughs> Check this out. You know, it's going you know, to blow your mind. It's gonna, everything's going to be really great. So... I read, the, I, read, I read an article, I, I, I can't remember, I go back and forth, it was either in Washington Post or the New Yorker, you know, middle-aged reading, right? And I got really curious about it. And as a writer and a teacher, what do I do when I get curious? I do a lot of research. So I get, I, I, I'm, pounding, I'm pounding the hell out of the, I'm pounding the hell out of the internet about mushrooms and about psychedelic drugs. And I come across mention of a conference in New York called um, the, the, the Horizons, New Perspectives on Psychedelics. It's like, oh, I could go to that. Because I could tell all my friends, I could tell all my friends and my kids, my kids, you know, my kids' parents, my kids' friends' parents and anybody, and, and anybody that I know, well, I'm going to this research conference because, you know, I'm a writer and... <laughs> I'm really curious about this subject. I really think this is going to be the next big thing, and I want to be informed about this, and I want to be able to be out, of, be out ahead on the curve. So P.S., my real reason for going to Horizons was I hoped to find some, somebody <laughs> from whom I could get some fucking drugs. <laughs> so, uh, it, I mean... Things are really, I mean, things are really messed up. I'm dead broke. I come from New York, so I go, you know, I, I, I scrape together the money for the gas. I stay at my mom's house out on Long Island. I take the, uh, I, I, I drove my car in on the first day. So it was headed, it was held in two, two, in two different places. It was Judson Memorial Church, which is uh, 
which is around where NYU is on day one. Day two, it was held at the new school. But we're, so we're all you know, in, the, in, the, in Greenwich Village. So rather like today, you had these brilliant researchers standing up there with their charts and their statistics and their, their case studies, and, and they talk about, oh, wow, you know, this stuff is really great. You've got to check this stuff out. This is going to be, you know... I got, you know, my, my, all the people in our study, you know, they, they used to hate life, now they're all cured. The people that were dying from cancer, they thought they were going to lose it, they thought they were losing their minds. They feel pretty good about dying now. No problem. <laughs> so, we're about midway through the, we're about midway through the, the day one of the conference, and the NYU team has just gotten done giving this whole spiel about uh, end of life, um, about, about end of life problems. And I get up, and Neil, uh, was it Gold? Neil Goldsmith runs, runs this. He, he's, he's this kind of like slim guy, wears, wears skinny, he's, he's probably about my age. He wears skinny jeans, and he walks around with a microphone, and he's got this really deep voice. And so I raise my hand, and he comes up, and he, he lets me ask a question. So I look at the researchers, and I go, you know, what you're talking about sounds fabulous. And I think it's really cool that you're working with these, these populations, a.k.a. people who have nothing to lose and you can't get in trouble for fucking them up because they're, they're dying or they're, or they're so messed up with PTSD that, you know, that it's okay. We, we, can, we can give the drugs to those people because you know, we, can't make, we can't possibly make it work. So I go, why do you... What, I mean to say worse. I, say, I asked them, I said... When are you going to get around to helping somebody like me? I said, you know, I said, look, I'm not asking where to score drugs. Now, this is a big room, by the way, with, 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 with lots of doctors and MDs, PhDs, and really fucking serious people. So I go, you know, can you help a brother out? <laughs> so they go, harumph, 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 you know, so many worthy subjects to study. So few government permits to let, let us do it. We're sorry, we'll get to you eventually. So, I, 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 I kind of shook my head a little bit. I sit down. There's this Russian dude sitting next to me with a with very, very heavy Russian accent. He starts telling me about the dark web. Well, you can, well, you know, you can get any kind of drugs you like. You go and you get the bitcoins. And... You, you, go, you, go to the, you go to the Silk Road, and he, he writes down the URL for it. You get the onion, and you go, you know, the, the, the core browser, you go, you get it, they ship the, they ship the drugs to you. So I'm like, yeah, like, that's never going to happen. My, uh, well, no, the reason why is that my, my, my letter carrier was one of my biggest political enemies. She fucking opened up my mail all the time. That's illegal. Yes, it is. But it doesn't matter. You, you know what's going on in politics right now, like, like, like that matters. So I'm going, the last thing in the world I want is for my letter carrier to see a, a box with, you know, two-eighths of uh, mushrooms or, or like... That's it. Whatever, you know... So it's the only stuff I only know about mushrooms mostly. I know about mushrooms and LSD. So I go, I, this, this can't happen, right? So 
I'm a little crestfallen, and then I, I, didn't, I didn't go to the I didn't go to any of the social events, and so it was sort of like went, and then I went back home. I come back the next day, so now we're at the new school, and I'm talking to people, and you know, like, yeah, you know, I'm really curious about this stuff. You know, my big problem is I can't, you know, I don't know where to get the stuff. Everybody's like, yeah, <laughs> yeah, 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 I know, cool, cool. You know, it's just you'll find. It. <laughs> so we get toward the end. Of, we get toward the end of the day, and this lovely woman about my age comes up to me and she said, I heard, you know, I saw you stand up yesterday and ask that question. He said, I know somebody, but I wanted to meet you first and talk to you to find out, you know, to, to get a feel for who, who I was before I went and talked to, before I would go and see if it was okay to release this person's information. So I said, okay. She disappears, the rest of the conference comes and goes, I'm all pumped up with the, you know, this is your, you know, those, those fMRI uh, pictures where you got the, where they show, this is your brain not on drugs, and it's the, and it's the, uh, the dull gray thing, and they go, this is your brain on drugs, and it's like these eight slides with technicolors, <laughs> going, yeah, this is, this is, this, you know, this is what I want, right? So, I want to, I want to take drugs. <laughs> so at the end of the conference, she comes up to me and she said, I talked to this person. Here's his email address. She gives me a code word that I should put in the um, that I should put in the body of the body of the email, and I say, I say, okay, well, thank you very much. I send I send it off. And this is a bit, I, I, I want to be really careful about names and whatnot, but it's someone who lives in the city. So when you when you're from New York, when you say the city, that means Manhattan, Bronx, Brooklyn, Queens, Staten Island. Those are the outer boroughs. Yeah, he knows. Yeah, I'm a queen. But I'm yeah, no, I know, right. Yeah, well, at least it's not Staten Island, right? <laughs> so, yeah, exactly. So I, so I call this guy up, and he says, you know, I'd be happy to help you, but I know somebody in Providence that, uh, that, you know, that will be closer to you that, you could help, that could help you out. So I go, okay, cool. So I get with this person. We're back and forth. And now, it... By the time I finally get to speaking with this person, things are really, really bad for me. I mean, I'm like, people talk about suicide, suicidal ideation. Um, I used to rock climb. Not anymore, but I, I used to rock climb, so I've got all my gear. I know, how, I know how to tie shit that when you tie it, I can direct force and the knots don't come out. So I constructed something in my garage. I have 16-foot ceilings in my garage. Put my ladder out there. Stood up on the ladder. And... I'm getting ready to do this. And I have discovered there's one thing worse than wanting to kill yourself. It's realizing that you feel so bad, but that you're not going to kill yourself and that you're going to be fucking miserable. And there's nothing you can do about it. So I, get, I, I, end, up get, I end up having to go to a, um, a, a, a partial inpatient program to just get my shit together. And they almost didn't even want to let me out. But I kind of like got myself to where I promised I would get a therapist and I promised I wouldn't kill myself in, in, the, next, in the next month. So they let me out. And so I call up, you know, I ring up this person in Providence. You know this whole set and setting thing, right? She doesn't want to deal with my set. So she says, you know, maybe not. So she kind of connects me with, she, she bounces me back to the guy that uh, I originally contact, had gotten in contact with. So 
When I talked to her, she wanted me to, she said, well, you know, when you do it, I want you to take seven grams dried, dried mushrooms. So this is, um, it's my, it would have been, it, that would have been my second time taking mushrooms. I took them back in 1980 when I was in the Pacific Northwest, you know, where everybody, get, you know, everybody does Liberty Caps, right? So we drank beer and threw back, uh, you know, threw, threw back some mushrooms and had a great old time. So this isn't what we're talking about. So I go to this guy and I say, yeah. She says, um, this woman I was talking to says I should take seven grams. He goes, no. Oh no, I said, no. He says, that's entirely too much. <laughs> You'll be fine with two and a half grams. So I go, yeah, all right. So I go there, and, and I'm, you have to, I'm, I'm scared. Like, I'm going, I'm going to somebody I don't know. Um, I, have, I had three stents recently put in my heart. I don't know if this shit's going to kill me. Um, I don't know if when I get there, he's going to take my wallet, roll me and throw me out into, you know, throw, throw me out into the street. I don't, you know, I don't know, but there was something, I had to go. I mean, it's just, I got to that point where I had to go. It was, it was that or we were going, you know, we were going back to the ladder. So I went. So I took the two and a half grams, I lay back, caught the wave, and then I got into, I got into some sort of recursive loop. So he goes, yeah, you seem to be perseverating about... And I was having this whole conversation in my head, arguing with my Zen master, who I decided at that moment was full of shit. So I'm like, kind of talking, you know, like recursively talking about this. And he goes, uh, you think you want to try a little bit more? We'll see if we can bounce you out of that. So yeah, sure. So I end up taking five grams on my first trip. Bam! <laughs> but not like you think, bam. It was all, like, I, I, I've done, you know, I've done mushrooms a bunch of times since then, and I don't, I, I've always, when I close my, eyes, I close my eyes, I've always hallucinated, so the experience I had visually with the mushrooms was very similar to what I've done with shamanic, with shamanic journey, journeying with, with, with drums, what I've done, like my, my eyelid movies when I was a little kid, it was, it was very similar to that, but the emotional content was profound. And... I walked out of there, and it was a different guy. You know, it's like it wasn't all better. Like everybody, you know, anybody that does this stuff, you know, if you do it like for, to, to better yourself as a person, you know that there's like the whole integration thing. You get the download, and then you got to like figure out what all the symbols mean, and you got to put you know, put it into your life. But there was like this seismic shift in my consciousness that happened as a result of that. And so I kind of took that into my therapy. And of course, like all the, you know, when I was in the inpatient thing, I told him, yeah, I want to take psilocybin, you know, I want to take LSD, I want to take psychedelics. And they, that was like giving them reasons to keep me there. You know, they're like, no, no, you can't take that stuff. We don't know what that's going to do to you, right? Yeah, it's going to make me better and I won't have to take Zola for the rest of my life. And so I'd gone from, I had a very, very long dry spell with my writing. And... Once, that, once I had that shift and I started working again, so this is probably about 18, about 18 months ago, I've written over 2,000 pages of text. I have, I'm working on three books right now. Um, it just went, bam, blew me up. It just blew, blew, it blew my brain. It blew, it blew me open. So this is sort of like how the, how the, how the, how the medicine has affected me, but I want to kind of cut, go back to this idea of... Um, 
the difficulties of scoring drugs when you're my age. I've subsequently gone to three, uh, two, two more Horizons con uh, conferences. So my second one, that's when I met, uh, right, so that's when I met Lex. And he uh, made me a member of the No Nonsense Club. And I'm, mm -hmm. I'm forever grateful that I'm, oh, running out? What? No, no, that's the firm. Oh, okay, I thought you were, uh, yeah. <laughs> yeah, so the No Nonsense, so I became a, a member of the No Nonsense Club. But more importantly, he's, Lex has been sort of like a nice, a sympathetic ear and a person who's directed me to different kinds of, He's gotten, gotten information for me in different kinds of resources and whatnot. And not of the scoring drugs variety, but just of the intellectual variety. So the last one, so this last October, I ended up going to Horizons again. And Lex had a party at his house after, um, after the event was over. So we go. And I'm at his place, and he was at Bed-Stuy at the time. So we're, we're there. We're hanging out. And I'm talking to his roommate and telling her this story about this really wonderful woman that got me pointed in the right direction as far as uh, uh, having, having a psilocybin experience. Turns out it was her mom. So really cool, right? So I go, you know, I, I tell her the story about standing up, you know, can you help a brother out? And she goes, hmm, that was you? So we all thought you were a narc. <laughs> I probably would too. Yeah, of course you would. But you probably still think I am, <laughs> right? So it's like, oh, so now, now the light goes on because I'm not you guys. You know, I'm I'm 59 years old. You guys, I, my my daughter's a junior in high school. You're the you're the age of my daughter, and, and you know, thereabouts. So. I go, ah, now this, now this all makes sense. So this is kind of like my last piece. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to tie this all up in a minute. So I make arrangements to, with, 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 with a friend to, to hold space for me because I'm afraid to take five grams all by, by myself. I, I, have, I can't do it at home. I, you know, I'm, I'm not going in the middle of the woods to, you know, to, to, to take you know, on, on five grams of mushrooms and walking around going, good golly, because somebody's going to know me in my town that see me walking around. And go, here's Bob, and I'm going to be on the first. I'm, I'm going to be on the front page of the paper. Again. Not, you know, not going to do that. So I make arrangements to do this, but the person that, that's going to help me out, another another friend in New York City. I go down, and you know, so he's he's going to, he's going to hold space for me, but he's involved in, in anti-prohibition work, and. All the people who do that sort of work have to be really careful about what they do because they can't be giving people drugs and then writing about drugs. So it fell on me to obtain the material. So I was really curious about LSD and I wanted to do like 400 mics of a, I wanted to like, the, my, my micro dosing told me I needed to, it was time for like a big, you know, a, a big thing. So I'm trusting my intuition. So I go, yeah, okay, so I'm going to do this. So I happened to meet a, a, somebody at, somewhere, and turns out the drug dealers have business cards. <laughs> so I had this business card sitting around, so I call up the guy, and I go, yeah, well, this is what I want, right? So then he goes, okay, but I'm not going to come to you know, the part of the city where you are. You're going to have to come, and you're going to have to meet me. So I go, okay. So this is, he gives me a, a, a street corner on, uh, in, in Harlem. Now, 
to you guys, in, you know, in 2017, Harlem's kind of like a cool place. It's like one, 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 one of the places to be now. My dad was a New York City policeman in the 50s, 60s, and 70s. So in the 60s and 70s, Harlem was where the race riots were. Harlem was where a lot of the 2,000 murders that happened in uh, New York City happened. It was, it's a scary, it was a scary freaking place for me. So I go, Harlem, okay. And something just didn't sit right with me. And I thought to myself, I said, there's no way. I'm going to go put a bunch of money in an envelope, meet some guy in a corner and swap envelopes. I don't know who this fucking guy is. I don't know who's watching him. I don't know. I don't know anything. So I, I, I said, this is just not going to happen. So I'm going to end my talk with, do you know where I can score some LSD? 